All right. <laughs> this is the, at the same time, live recording and past recording. So I wonder if you'll remember having listened to this in person. <laughs> All right. Threat comes to campus. After declining for 25 years, reports in the, reported incidents of hate crimes in, increased in 2015. In 2016, those numbers, tracked by the FBI, rose a further 5%. One study of major U.S. cities from January to August 2017 suggests a 20% rise in reported hate crimes compared to the first eight months of 2016. It is extremely difficult to obtain accurate statistics on hate crimes, and some widely publicized events have turned out to be hoaxes. Nonetheless, there is a widespread perception on campus that hate crimes are increasing in the Trump era, and as far as we can tell from our review of the available research, there is some truth to that perception. On campus, threats, have taken, threats take concrete and sometimes terrifying forms. In 2015, a white student in Missouri University of Science and Technology was arrested for posting on social media that he was going to the Mizzou campus, the main campus of the University of Missouri, where black students were protesting and would, quote, shoot every black person, unquote, he saw. This happened five months after Dylan Roof murdered nine black parishioners in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. On October 2017, a white University of Maryland student was charged with murder and a hate crime after stabbing to death Richard Collins III, a visiting Bowie State student, who was apparently targeted for being black. In the aftermath of the murder of Heather Heyer and the violence of white, at the white supremacist march through Charlottesville, the physical threat posed by the alt-right and neo-Nazis became far more real for many observers who might have previously thought the alt-right was limited to internet trolls. In October 2017, only two months after the Char Charlottesville March, avowed white nationalist Richard Spencer spoke at the University of Florida. An hour and a half after Spencer's speech ended, three men proclaimed to be white nationalists drove their car over to a group of protesters at a bus stop and began to yell neo-Nazi chants at them. After one of the protesters hit the rear window of the vehicle with a baton, the three men jumped out of the car rep reportedly yelling, Quote, I'm going to fucking kill you and, quote, shoot them. One of the white nationalists, Tyler Tenbrink, was carrying a gun. He fired one shot, missing the protesters, and then the men fled. All three were later caught and charged with attempted homicide. Months later, at Wayne State University in Michigan, a student pulled a knife during a dispute with a group that was handing out pamphlets in favor of immigrants' rights. He said he, he wanted to, quote, hey. Yes? Just wanted to see if you're listening. I'm always listening, honey. <laughs> Alright. Now sleep well. Of course I will. Sleep's a good thing lately. It means it brings me closer to seeing you. I can't wait to see you, baby. Good night. Good night. Good. Sleep well. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to give you a real one.
Alright. Um, he said he wanted to, quote, kill all the illegals and don't, that don't belong in our country, unquote. Students of color facing ongoing threats for, to their safety and seeing frequent reports of threats elsewhere are not a new phenomenon. The history of race in America is a history of discrimination and intimidation intertwined with a, pro, with a history of progress. And yet, this new wave of racial intimidation may be particularly upsetting because of recent progress. In 2008, when the election of Barack Obama, with the election of Barack Obama, many Americans had the sense that the country had turned a corner in a struggle with racism. In late 2016, college students in the United States had spent the previous eight years in a country with a black president, and most experts and pundits were telling them to expect the transition to the country's first female president. The shock of Trump's victory must have been particularly disillusioning for many black students and left-leaning women. Between the president's repeated racial provocations and the increased visibility of neo-Nazis and their ilk, it became much more plausible that it had been a long time that, quote, white supremacy, even using a narrow definition, was not just a relic of the distant past. We close this chapter by repeating Allison Stinger's assessment, quote, political life and discourse in the United States is at a boiling point, and nowhere is the reaction to that more heightened than on college campuses, unquote. This is the context in which today's college students are trying to make sense of major national events and are reacting to seemingly small local incidents. We have suggested throughout this book that some interpretations of events are more constructive than others, but our point in this chapter is that there are reasons why students are doing what they're doing. This, there is a backstory. There is a national context. The polarization spiral and the growth of negative partisanship are influencing political activity all across the country, driving many Americans to embrace the untruth of us versus them. The next three chapters will show that it is not just the college campuses that have been changing. It is also the young people coming into them. Changes in adolescent mental health and in the nature of American childhood may have rendered many current students more easily burned by the, quote, boiling that they find once they arrive on campus. And some. The United States has experienced a steady increase in at least one form of polarization since the 1980s, effective or emotional polarization, which means that people who identify with either of the two main political parties increasingly hate and fear the other party and the people in it. This is our first of six explanatory, explanatory threads that will help us understand what we are, what we, what has been changing on campus. Effective polarization in the United States is roughly symmetrical, but as university students and faculty have shifted leftward during a time of rising cr- cross party hatred, universities have begun to receive less trust and more hostility than from some conservative and right-leaning organizations. Beginning in 2016, the number of high-profile cases of professors being hounded or harassed on the right or for something they said in an interview or on a social media began to rise. Rising political polarization, accompanied by increases in racial and political Provocation from the right, usually directed from off-campus to on-campus targets. It is an essential part of the story of why behavior is changing on campus, particularly since 2016. Chapter 7. Anxiety and Depression 
quote, depressed people often stick pins into their own life rafts. The conscious mind can intervene. One is not helpless, unquote. Andrew Solomon, The Noonday Demon, An Atlas of Depression. The second of our six expl explanatory threads is the rise in rates of depression and anxiety among American adolescents in the 2010s. These mood disorders have have many close relationships with the three great untruths. Here is a here is a first-person account of depression. It is not from an adolescent, it, but it illustrates Andrew Solomon's statement above about how the conscious mind can intervene. Quote, I had spent the day scouring websites for ways to kill myself. At almost every turn, I found stories about how a method could fail, leaving you still alive but permanently injured. This even applied to shooting yourself. I could not risk that, so I went to the hardware store across the street, looking for strong plastic bags and metal wire. The idea was to crush up all the sleeping meds, tranquilizers, and anti-anxiety meds I had, take them all at once, then wrap my head so that even if the pills did not kill me, suffocation would. But it had to be strong enough that I could not claw my way out of the bag if I had a change of heart. I needed to go through with it now, as quickly as possible, because... Why? Because it was the right thing to do, and if I waited, I might not, not might not go through with it. And I needed to go through with it while I had the will. If I felt better later, I would somehow be a, it would somehow be a lie. I had a powerful sense that I was in touch with some dark, larger truth that I needed to die. I don't know if it was briefly sensing how strange this thought was that gave me the tiny flash of sanity that caused me to call nine one one. First, I started to explain that I had planned in a detached way, but soon I was crying. The voice in the other end of the line so told me to get myself to a hospital right away. I listened. I spent the next three days of December 2007 at a psychiatric facility in North Philadelphia. I was already scheduled to move from Philadelphia, where I felt utterly isolated, back to New York City, where I had friends and family. I found a doctor who was the first person in years to reduce rather than increase my meds, and I started cognitive behavioral therapy as soon as I moved to New York. At first, it seemed to make a little make a little difference. The doctor showed me time and time again how I used every bit of brain to support a view of myself, a schema that I said I was hopeless, broken person. I did my CBT exercises twice a day, and I gradually began to recognize my angry, flailing, defensive mind trying to protect the nasty version, vision of myself. There was no eureka moment. My rational mind could understand that my thoughts were distorted, but nothing changed until it simply became a habit to hear the cruelest, craziest, and most destructive voices in my head without believing I had to act on them. When I stopped letting those voices win, they got quieter. Thanks to CBT, my mind is now in the habit of hearing my worst thoughts as if they are speaking in silly cartoon voices. While I still get depressed, the frequency and severity of those bouts are nowhere near as powerful as they used to be. Unquote. The author of this count is Greg. He believes that CBT saves life. In a matter of just a few months, he began to learn how to catch his own distortions. And once he learned to, to spot them himself, he started to hear them coming from other people too. Once you are accustomed to lurking, looking for them, it's not very hard to identify catastrophizing, dichotomous thinking, labeling, and all the rest.
Almost as soon as he started practicing CBT in 2008, Greg noticed in his work as a president of FIRE that administrators on campus were sometimes modeling cognitive distortions for students. Administrators often acted in ways that gave the impression that students were in constant danger and in need of protection from a variety of risks and discomforts, as we'll discuss in Chapter 10. But back then, millennial students mostly rolled their eyes at administrative overreaction. It was only when the first members of iGen started entering college, around 2013, that Greg began to notice this more fearful attitude about speech coming from the students themselves. In the new discussions about safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, and speech as violence, students often employed arguments and justifications that seemed to come right out of the CBT training manual. That's why Greg invited John to launch in 2014. These are the two authors, by the way. And that's where we wrote our Atlantic article, article in 2013, 2015. In that essay, we briefly discussed changes in childhood in the United States, such as the decline in unsupervised time and the recent rise of social media. But we focused our attention on what was happening after students arrived at college. At the time, we had just begun to hear the first alarms being raised by college mental health professionals who said they were being overwhelmed by rising demand. We suggested that perhaps some of the very things colleges were doing to protect students from words and ideas ended up increasing the demand for mental health services by inadvertently increasing the use of cognitive distortions. By 2017, however, it was clear we had misunderstood what was going on. The colleges were not the primary cause of the wave of mental illness among other students. Rather, students seeking help were part of a much larger national wave of adolescent anxiety and depression unlike anything seen in modern times. Colleges were struggling to cope with rapidly rising numbers of students who were suffering from mental illness, primarily mood disorders. The new culture of safetyism can be understood in part as an effort by some students, faculty, and administrators to remake the campus in response to this new trend. If more students say they feel threatened by certain kinds of speech, the more protections should be offered. Our basic message in this book is that is a is that this is way of thinking may be wrong. College students are anti-fragile, not fragile. Some well-intended protections may backfire and make things worse in the long run for the students we are trying to help. In this chapter, we explore recent findings in the declining mental health of American adolescents. There is some evidence that similar trends may be happening in Canada and the United Kingdom, although the evidence in those countries is not as clear and consistent as it is in the United States. In all three countries, girls seem to be more affected than boys. How is mental health changing on campus and off, and why did the new culture of safetyism emerge only after 2013? You still awake, on? I'll take that as a no. Um, and that will be the conclusion of this episode as well. Another long episode. <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed um, listening to it again, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Uh.